0: I got to thinking this morning that probably what my plan was for this sermon is too ambitious, but when has that ever deterred me? (laughs) So here's what I want to talk about. I want to say again what the the great themes of Advent are uh, moving forward to Christmas, to say something to you about the other minor prophet we heard from in these readings we included the Old Testament reading for today's Eucharistic lectionary in the Lessons and Carols from Micah, then to say some things about the central figure of the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and to say some things to you about how Episcopalians uh, have thought about the Blessed Virgin Mary, her importance in the divine economy, and how we might make some Use of her as a type of spiritual template, just like the Savior, that we lay over our own spiritual development and maturity, and to focus on a particular, but by no means the only quality that she expresses in her life and work in the biblical witness, and that is obedience. So it affords the opportunity to say some things about the nature of obedience and how we might understand its importance and centrality uh, for our own spiritual growth as well. The four major themes of Advent are repentance, hope, expectation, and joy. Being willing to turn around and look at your life in a new way, To be able to say, here's how now I intend to orient myself as I move forward. And not only to do this as an internal resolve uh, with regard to your emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but to make some decisions about how you put that into your hands and move forward. To be a hopeful person means to be honest, open, persistent, and enthusiastic about all of the things that you know you need to do to be, uh, pursue excellence and to uh, achieve what you need to and to be the best human being that you can be. Being hopeful is a way of cooperating with the divine initiative that has been begun in you. Expectancy is the willingness to allow your imaginative powers to have their full play in the way you understand your future and your present life. So the use of imagination for Christian people is very important. And it may not appear on the surface that this is so, given uh, the velocity of the world that we live in now, but imagination is not one of the more sought-after commodities. And Christian people have always been imaginative. Good leaders are imaginative. The savior of the world was imaginative. And so perhaps even the Blessed Virgin Mary was imaginative in seeing uh, the need in some way to respond to the divine initiative that was begun in this particular case uh, at the Annunciation. So being expectant about the future is important. And finally, for Christian people, joy is the belief, the confidence, that the ambiguities and the uncertainties and the conundrums of life can and will come into surer and clearer focus if you begin to be more intentional about who you are and what you do. So this is a process of agreeing to follow the Savior. You know, Jesus' invitation isn't to accept a whole checklist of... um, doctrinal pronouncements about what we believe to be true about God, about Him, about the Blessed Virgin Mary, about any of the things that are important as part of our institutional life and the tradition with a capital T. But we have been called to follow Him on the way, to go on pilgrimage. And so the season of Advent is the beginning of the Christian year where we take that seriously and realize that it's an important thing to do. And let's face it, you and I are on a pilgrimage whether we want to be or not, right? (laughs) The question is whether or not you want to get on that heaven-bound train, and that's up to you. So all of those aspects of the season of Advent are with us as we move into uh, the fourth Sunday. We also read in the lessons from, in this service of Lessons and Carols, last week's reading, from the Hebrew Bible, from Zephaniah. And Zephaniah, like Micah, is one of the minor prophets. Uh, As I've mentioned to you many times, uh, a minor prophet is not someone whose prophetic utterances are less important than a major prophet. It only means that he had a little book. And a major prophet had a big book. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Their books are long. And the 12 minor prophets have smaller books. And I think that Micah is about the sixth or the seventh of the, of the minor prophets. Zephaniah, in all of his book except what we read today and last week, is the painter of the blue picture. The day of the Lord is going to come, and we do not want it to come because there's going to be trouble and plenty of it. Except today, when he is speaking about a theme that is present in the prophetic voice of the people of Israel all along that will now find its unique focus in the Savior of the world. And that is that God's healing, reconciling power is going to bring an alienated and lost humanity back into the redemptive fold, into God's gracious embrace. And that this proclamation by the prophets of Israel, even if they didn't understand it at the time, not only for Christian people referred to Jesus, but saw in their sacred literature God's gracious invitation to everyone, not just the people of the covenant. So Micah today, also a painter of the blue picture, Micah has a lot of similarities, even though his his book is small, to... Isaiah. And there's a lot of biblical scholarship out there that suggests that Micah really spans a long period in the history of ancient Israel. And so the first part of the book was written by Micah in the 700s BC and uh, it ends sometime in the 500s with return from exile, return from the Babylonian captivity, God's promise, Today, we read this reading because it's the one that Matthew repeats in his gospel in the infancy narratives that you will hear on Christmas about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And the other important figure in the halcyon days of Israel who was born in Bethlehem is King David. And Matthew in his genealogy will hook Jesus up to King David. So we want to see somehow that there is continuity in the understanding of God's redemptive plan in how the people begin to understand their role in responding to the divine initiative. So bear in mind that when we get to Christmas, we're speaking about a process of continuity and that the incarnation doesn't represent just some sort of um, unique occurrence in history, but a historical reality that has a history and is comprehensible to the people who saw it and witnessed it, heard his words, and saw his works. Now, Mary. You know, the Episcopal Church uh, has a lot of views about Mary. A lot of different Episcopalians have a lot of views about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Some more high church, Episcopalians, have views about Mary not dissimilar from the Roman Catholics. And extreme Protestant Anglicans don't think she's that important at all, other than being the mother of Jesus. And some in the middle say, well, she's more important than that, but all this other stuff, not for me, right? My suspicion is that during the Protestant Reformation, the great problem was that the Reformers uh, believed that the excessive piety that had been generated with regard to the veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary had gone over the top, and that there was not sufficient scriptural warrant for doing those things. I thought, well, what what should I say to you about uh, a way of encapsulating the Episcopalian view? And so I took a big chance and went to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a section on how Episcopalians, how Anglicans think about it. In Anglicanism, Mary's special position within God's purpose of salvation as God-bearer, Theotokos, Father Brewer says God-bearer because that's what Father Emerson, when he says Theotokos, means because Theotokos means God-bearer in Greek. So you get the highfalutin one, and you get <laughs> a little bit more, you know, clotting from the two of us. The Church affirms in its historic creeds that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and celebrates the feast days of the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. This feast is called in older prayer books, the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Annunciation of Our Lord to the Blessed Virgin is also celebrated. The Annunciation, called the Annunciation of Our Lady in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And Anglicans also celebrate the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary on May the 31st, though in some provinces the traditional date of July 2nd is kept. The Feast of St. Mary the Virgin is observed on the traditional day of the Assumption, August the 15th, and the Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary is celebrated on December the 8th. It might surprise you to know that in the 1662 prayer book, December the 8th has on the calendar what they call the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hardly a wildly Catholic document, the 1662 prayer book, I might add. So it sounds to me as though, in typical Anglican fashion, we are not prepared to go over the top in over-explaining this, but the practice the Lex Orandi, you know, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief, that somehow Mary does have a central place. Roman Catholics and Episcopalians have been talking for a long, long time together, and they uh, issued a statement last May on the Blessed Virgin Mary and uh, felt that it was important to speak about the points at which we are in agreement. And a lot of Episcopalians have problems with the assumption, which they think is a rather large assumption, and the Immaculate Conception. And so what we've said to the Roman Catholics in the Anglican and Roman Catholic International Commission is, uh, we have problems with this, but we're going to just leave that alone and focus on other things. It's not a deal breaker anymore for us. For those Protestant Episcopalians who feel there is not sufficient scriptural warrant for those things, that's fine too. Remember, the Assumption and the Immaculate Conception have been widely believed from ancient times. They have not been promulgated as doctrines until fairly recently, and in the Middle Ages, many important medieval theologians had enormous problems with the Immaculate Conception, which, as part of my ambitiousness, I am going to now explain to you and to explain to you how it is different from the virginal conception of Jesus, what is described today in today's Gospel. They're not the same. The Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that says Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. Some of you may be saying, well, who cares, right? Why are people in that, got into this fever swamp of speculation on this matter? Well, at one time it did matter for many. So what that means is that Mary essentially was conceived with post-baptismal grace, So she was born without original sin and with post-baptismal grace. As Father Hunt used to say in my seminary, you can believe that if you want to. And I think you can, to be frank. The assumption, by the way, is the Doctrine or the dogma that was officially promulgated by Pope Pius XII in 1950. And what that means, of course, is if it's declared a dogma, ex cathedra, it was the last time a pope ever made a pronouncement, ex cathedra, which meant an infallible pronouncement, that this now is to be believed by all faithful Roman Catholics as true. Episcopalians, on August the 15th, the Feast of the Assumption, that we call the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary, says the collect at the beginning of the Mass, the prayer to open the Mass, of the Assumption. So go figure. Right? Does that mean that we're trying to have our cake and eat it too? You bet. So what is the virginal conception? The virginal conception is the doctrine that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And the agent for her conception was the Holy Spirit of God. So I need now to do something very elaborate, which you may believe is beating a dead horse, but I'm going to do it anyway. Where did we get this from, this idea? In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew reproduces a quotation from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Counselor, Dara. All right? In the Hebrew Bible which Matthew knew full well about since he was a Jewish Christian and probably a former rabbi. It uses the word Alma, which means a young woman of marriageable age, not virgin. Matthew uses the Greek Old Testament in this case, and quotes from the Greek Old Testament and says, virgin, parthenos, which is what is in the Septuagint, not young woman, but virgin. The issue here is this. Luke and Matthew are in possession of a tradition that predates the writing of these Gospels and is part of the earliest tradition of the transmission of the stories about Jesus' conception and birth. And they believe themselves duty-bound to report them in this way. So you can decide what you want to do with that information, but it was important that they transmit to us in the biblical witness a long tradition of the virginal conception. Reginald Fuller, one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century in our Anglican tradition, said all that the historic historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. Many would argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. Now, you've heard me say this to you many times before. The only two places in the Bible where an infancy narrative occurs is in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark's gospel to write their gospel. There was no infancy narrative there. And then Matthew and Luke had their own material to write their gospel that was unique to them called Special M and Special L. And these infancy narratives are part of the special material. Do you get what I'm saying? So what that means is that they transmit this tradition that they received and they're not dependent on one another. They have received this tradition from somewhere else. And it's believed by Fuller and other biblical scholars that then that means this came from the oral transmission that predates the writing of the Gospels. So the idea of Mary's virginal conception was important to the early church for some reason. Now I mentioned to you that Mary is venerated for a number of reasons in the Church's life and her obedience is one of them. And it affords the opportunity to say a word to you about obedience because some of us have a particular, I think in in our present age, we have a particular view of what obedience is, which could be um, described as rule keeping commandment, compliance, performance according to precepts and works. That's what being obedient is. Well, in the Latin word for obedience, and in the Greek understanding of this, during the time in the ancient Near East, obedience meant listening, hearing. And it meant listening internally to the still small voice that you know is not your own, it means paying attention, and it means heeding what you have heard. And so it was the Church's belief, anciently, that Mary was the exemplar par excellence of this kind of obedience. She also was obedient to an understanding that Luke provides for us of the, the work and works of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, we see uh, a uh, special regard for issues of social justice and equity. And Luke puts in the mouth of Mary the Magnificat, which Father Emerson read to you today, the great process of God's abiding care for those on the margins and for the lowly and meek, And for the understanding that those who are prosperous and may have gained their prosperity off the backs of those less fortunate will see ultimately in God's plan for creation a different way of understanding how we get along with one another. And it's the Blessed Virgin Mary who speaks those words, not some prophet. She exercises the prophetic utterance in this particular case so I've always believed listening to the Magnificat that Mary was no pushover you know there's been a lot written in the last 25 or 30 years about the victimization of the Blessed Virgin Mary and um, you know Will Rogers used to refer to something called after dinner hooey which that might be so we need to realize that This week, as you continue, uh, think about uh, repentance as you move to the new year, Christmas in the new year, how you can look at your life in a new way, how through honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm you can respond to the divine initiative, how you can use your imaginative powers greater, and how this provides you the opportunity uh, to be joyful about your prospects, in God's eyes, who loves, accepts, and forgives you unconditionally, and the great liberation that that brings with regard to being able to make a difference in the world in your relationship. Amen.